I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. Stephen Mayoff is a writer, poet, and lyricist based in Prince Edward Island. He joined me to talk about Dion, a rock opera, which premieres at Toronto's Coal Mine Theatre February 4th to March 3rd. In this conversation, we talk about how he first began collaborating with Ted Dykstra, how he came to find himself living in PEI by way of Toronto and Montreal, his novel The Island Gospel According to Samson Grief, and much more. Here's our conversation. jump in um because i'm really interested in in this show um we're gonna start talk by talking about dion a rock opera can you give me the, the tell me what is uh dion a rock opera just to get started okay well it's a uh, it is a rock opera but it's uh, based on the back eye by euripides and um it is something of a of a reimagining but we've stuck as close as we can to the actual play. Um, what, uh, what, what was it about, about, uh, uh, the back eye that, that sort of felt like you, it wanted to be a, 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 well, a rock it, opera. This was initially uh, Ted Dykstra's idea. Ted Dykstra is the, uh, composer and, uh, one of the, uh, co-founders of, uh, the coal mine theater where it's, this show will be, uh, will be produced or will be uh, presented. Um, he, I, I couldn't tell you why he wanted to do it. I think it's something it, he did tell me he, it's something he wanted to do for a long time. And he played Pentheus, uh, at one time, um, I believe it was at Stratford. Um, so the thing is, Ted and I, uh, we've known each other for years. We've known each other since 1981. Uh, I met him when he was a student at the National Theatre School. Oh, the minute we met, we started writing songs. We wrote for uh, almost like 20 years. And in fact, we wrote another rock or rock musical before this uh, called Dorian, based on the picture of Dorian Gray. And that we started writing that in the uh, late eighties. I believe it was around eighty-eight, and uh, we developed it throughout the nineties. It never got a, a production. It did have a couple of uh, workshops, though. And then we we stopped writing for a short time. Well, not really. I guess it was around twenty years, uh, really, almost. Um, and uh, the, I had moved to Prince Edward Island when I met him was in Montreal and then we all moved to, to Toronto and then I moved to PEI in uh, 2001 and Ted went off and did some other stuff and I was doing other stuff and then we started writing again uh, during the pandemic in 2020 
And uh, we just started writing a couple of songs. And that's when he came to me and he said, you know, would you like to do this rock opera? And I really wasn't sure because the last one we'd worked on, it was a long time we were working on it. And I said, how long is this going to take? And, you know, is this going to get a production? And so he said, you know, he, it was obviously it was it was a real um, uh, work of passion that he wanted to work on. And so I, I read the play and then I had to read the play again. And I probably had to read it a few times. And I, I went, I, I'm not sure what this thing, what's going on here. I know what's going on. It's a king and a god who are having a feud. Uh, but, you know, what's really this about? And then I did some research on uh, YouTube. And so I I just searched um, the back eye. And I came across mostly um, university lectures. And so I would watch, there was one I watched in particular, and it's pretty dry stuff to be be honest. But um, it was, it brought up some really interesting things who Dionysus is and the fact that of his duality and his origin, of course, Dionysus origin is that, uh, well, his mother, Semele, was uh, Zeus's lover. And she wanted to look on her lover's face, but mortals can't look at gods. And so she did. She was incinerated immediately. And uh, Zeus reaches inside her, takes out the fetus, plants it in his thigh, and it gestates and then is born as Dionysus, uh, who is now half mortal and half god. And so... Um, so this this sort of went away as to how, you know, and there's a question is, is he a, a demigod? But apparently he isn't. And so his duality allows him to walk the earth. And so there was all this information that I thought, okay, this is interesting. I'm getting stuff out of this. I'm getting to know a little more about this. And uh, so, you know, I'd write a song or two. And the thing is, I should also mention when Ted originally uh, came to me with this idea he had written a snippet of uh of of lyric and music and the, w the when the play starts pentheus the king of thebes has been away he's been on some uh, some trip somewhere he returns to find that uh the uh all the women of thebes have been sort of stolen by dionysus and he has made them his followers and so Pentheus is really angry about this. And so this is what this little piece was about Pentheus coming back. And the lyric had some swearing in it. And I said, oh, so this is like sort of fairly modern. We're, we're going with modern language here. Okay. So that was a clue for me. And I said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to use this, um, this piece and we'll create a song out of it. And so stuff started to get written. Now, this was 2020, and in 2020, um, Donald Trump was president, and he and COVID was rampant, and he was kind of getting his butt kicked by COVID, and it really looked like he probably was going to not uh, get elected into a second term. And so I started to think about that a lot, and because uh, Pentheus, kind of a no-brainer that he's a, an authoritarian figure. But then I started to look at 
Dionysus, or Dion, of course, our, our version of, of Dionysus. And um, the, the one thing about COVID that really interested me was that um, everyone was in their homes. They all had to stay at home. And so animals and a lot of nature and wildlife were returning to habitats that they had abandoned because of, of, of a human presence. So now they were reclaiming all this, all this um, area, all this land. And, and so I thought, well, this is nature coming back, nature taking over. And Dionysus is about nature. It's about, he's all about nature um, overcoming uh, um, cities. And, and the, the, the idea here is that he's, uh, he's the shadow side of, uh, of, modern of of kind of modernized world and so um i thought well if pentheus is a kind of trumpian figure well then uh dion is covid <laughs> so i thought okay well that suddenly really changed things for me and it gave me a language to start using in in the lyrics so uh, referring to uh dion as a virus and so suddenly things really started to gel much more. And, uh, you know, I really started to work earnestly on the, uh, uh, on, on the libretto and I would, as songs were written, I would give them to Ted and he was writing stuff. And so that, that's kind of how it all got started really. And that's, that's sort of why, and, and we also knew that we wanted to have, um, that his followers were not only going to be women. And of course in the play, um, um, uh, Tiresias and, uh, and Cadmus are also, uh, become followers of his. But what we also want to do was have, um, certain members of civilization, like these marginalized groups to become his followers as well. And so that was, uh, that was a really important aspect of it and that this was not just him gathering followers, but it became a kind of a movement. And so that was something what we want, that we want to do. We wanted to kind of retell the story, um, through, through a lens of diversity. And, uh, and of course, Dion in our version, uh, Dion is trans. And so Dion is they, them. And, um, yeah, so suddenly when when all this was sort of come into place, um it was it was all starting to happen. Um th there's a lot to digest there. My, my one of the first things that I, I thought as you were describing the origins of uh of, of, of Dionysus is uh Zeus just can't keep from keep yeah. pulling kids out of his body. <laughs> um, but but um I'm really curious. You you alluded to um, writing the libretto and then passing it off to Ted Dykstra for to add the music. Is that how you have collaborated with him? Uh, like for example, in the, the the Doria musical, is that how you typical? That's typically how we write? write anything songs. Like even individual songs. We wrote a lot of individual songs, and it was clear from the beginning Ted wanted lyrics first, and. Um, it just, I think he said he, he, he just, he takes inspiration from the words, but I think he also takes inspiration. It helps him to have a lyrical frame to work with. So he knows 
you know, what's what, this is a verse, this is a chorus and, and he'll be able to change that if he wants. But, uh, yeah, he likes to have the framework to work on. And anyway, in, in, in theater or in opera, the librettos usually come first. And so this was, you know, pretty much standard to do it that way. And I don't give him a full libretto. I give him individual songs. So songs come mm. and then music mm -hmm. starts to develop. And then what often happens is, you know, if we have a first draft, um, and then we start revising, you know, the story gets revised. And so lyrics are going to be revised and then, uh, or new songs might be written. And then I'll take, I'll often sort of look at what the music is and listen for melodies that are motifs, repeated melodies or melodies that would, could be repeated that sort of give a sense of either, um, uh, some, something, something in the narrative or something in the character. And so I'll take those uh, melodies and I'll say, uh, I'm going to try something like this, or sometimes I'll take a snatch of melody from one song and a snatch of melody from another song and say, maybe we'll put these together and create this thing. And so you have, Ted and I have our own vocabulary for all this. We tend to call this the glue the glue that sort of puts it together and makes it a whole thing. Um, so yeah, so that, that's pretty much how it works for us. It, it usually it's words come first. Yeah, no, I was really curious about how you go from like individual songs to, to putting it together as a whole, a whole thing. And you, you've described that. So thank you for that. Um, as, as somebody who has pretty much written for their, most of their life, I think, I think pretty much always, at least uh, 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 in high school. Um, when did you start writing lyrics? How did how did becoming a lyricist uh, well, start becoming a thing? One of the first things I started to write was lyrics. Um, I guess you know, for I, 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 music is always a part of my life. I was very influenced. We had a big record collection. We had a lot of uh, Broadway soundtracks. We had operas, things like that. And I used to actually lip sync to all these. So the, the lyrics were right there for me. I was listening to it. And uh, we had, my brother had a huge stack of uh, 45s, rock and roll 45s. And so I used to lip sync to that. So, um, the, I, so lyrics were there for me right from the beginning before I started reading, really be interested, I, I, you know, interested in books. Books were really came later for me in life. And, um, in high school, I started to write poetry in my last year of high school, but I was also interested in writing lyrics and I had friends who were musicians and every now and then I'd collaborate, I'd write something and they'd write something for me for some music for it. Um, and I remember, um, uh, early, I think after, or yeah, once I'd graduated high school, I tried to, I'd gone, I'd went around to, um, recording studios in Montreal and I had these lyrics and I would say, you know, I'm a lyricist and, you know, no one was interested, but, uh, so, but I was, so that interest was very, very early on. Um, and then I started to write poetry and I was writing a lot of poetry, um, and lyrics, they were always there, but I think, uh, and I had, I'd written with different friends at different times of my life. Um, but when I met Ted, uh, which was 1981, um, it, it just, 
like it's sort of really struck. Like he really wanted to write songs. And I said, oh, wow. So he was the first person I met who like really wanted to do it and did it. Like I gave him a lyric and suddenly, you know, there was a song and and we never stopped doing it. Our our friendship, our relationship is dependent on us kind of writing songs. That's it's it's part of the fabric of that. Yeah. Um you mentioned uh being a kid in Montreal. Yes. Did you grow you grew up in Montreal? Um I know you went uh to That's the right. Na National Theater School for a short time. Um, and then you mentioned, uh, uh, that, uh, you were, you were That's cut right. at yeah. the end of the first year. Is that, is that right? Um, I, 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 I think now cutting students, uh, from, from schools has become, there's, I think there's been a lot more of a conversation around it than there used to be. Um, I know, uh, in my own time, when I was at theater school back in the nineties, they were still cutting people twice a year, um, when at the George Brown theater school and, uh, a number of people. Uh, we're told at the end of the year, uh, at the end of each semester, well, you're not going to come back. And a few people were able to like claw their way back to to stay in the program. But that meant that you and a lot of other people, I think, who saw fellow students getting cut, um, sort of found themselves living in fear through the rest of the the their their time at school. Um, as far as you recall, uh, what was your experience of, of of being cut? And I know that you found it a formative experience, but I'm, I'm curious about about uh, what what was behind that, how you dealt with it, and uh, and how that affected you yeah. going forward. Um, I I'll mention that um, um, I had a friend who was at the Dome Theater School in Montreal, which was part of CJEP, and my original plan was to uh, audition for that to go there. Um, but a friend of mine who was in NTS said, uh, well, why don't you just audition for NTS? I mean, like a rehearsal to see what it's like to audition. I said, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. And, uh, so I put a little audition together and I went and did it. And I, first of all, they, they, you know, you do your audition and then they come to you later and, and you're either, they say, thank you. Or they say, can you, can you stay? And they asked me to stay, and I was I was very surprised. And so they they asked me to stay. We did a couple of other people were stay, had stayed too. Did some improv, that sort of thing. And then I got the letter. It said I was in, and I couldn't believe it. And so I you know the oh, the Dome Theater School was suddenly out of my you know that was gone. So okay, I'm going to go to the National Theater School, and I knew it, it was a big big deal. And I was told, not by them, but just by people who know, um, this is a thing, you know, people get cut at the end of the year. So I knew right before it even started, you know, going in, I knew this was going to, this was something that, that happens. Now, I always thought this was something that they only did. Now, I didn't know that other theater schools did this. So when we started, you know, I remember a whole bunch of us, you know, the first years, our first years, uh, sort of sitting in an auditorium. Uh, oh, no, we, yeah, we were sitting in an auditorium and we were just kind of looking at each other, sussing each other out. And I'm sure everyone thinking, you know, him? Is it him? Is it her? Is it this guy? Is it me? And, you know, and you kind of go, it's there. Like, it's it's this sort of Damocles that is hanging over your head pretty much from day one. 
So, and you're always kind of, it's never far from your consciousness. And so when they tell you things and, you know, and they often said to me, you know, I, you know, theater school, I'd been in the workforce for about a good five years before that. I'd left high school when I was 17. And so this was a new experience and it was kind of liberating and kind of scary. And, you know, and so, and they had said things to me like, you need to work on this, you need to do this, you need, you know, and I would do it. And, and this was something that was new for me, that I could be disciplined in a way that I'd never been before. And, you know, and, and do things that were asked of me. And so, you know, I would wake up early, I'd go into the school before we started, I'd work on these exercises they gave me, I was like, really gung ho for it all. And so, and I had a lot of issues, had a lot of my own issues of, of being a theater student and actor problems, you know, um, problems with concentration, things like that. And so I knew that I didn't really think that it would be me, but I knew. And, uh, in the end it was two of us. And I remember being in the room with, uh, with the, um, artistic director and, and this, uh, associate and, um, and they just said, I'm sorry, you know, we don't, we think you've, you've come far, you've come far for you, for you, but it's not far enough for the school. So that was a real interesting clue for me. And I thought to myself, I have come far, but it's not far enough for them. And so you start to, you know, what I started to think about was the, the kind of progress that we make, you know, the being able to progress at your own speed, you know, and not at, um, some institutional, uh, ideal. And so, um, that's a, that was a new thing for me, you know, to sort of think you can progress and, and, and make yourself better, but you just do it for yourself. You don't have to do it for other people. So when, when they cut me, it was devastating. You know, it just is. It's rejection. Rejection's never good. And so I thought to myself, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, I'm terrible. Oh, whatever. And then you get over that part of it. And then you, and then I started to think, you know, so what am I going to do now? You know, am I going to, am I going to be an actor? Do I still want to be an actor? And again, this was something very new for me. Do I want to do this? And I think it takes a certain amount of courage to be able to say, no, I really don't want to do this. And an interesting thing about those last sort of months in theater school was I started, I hadn't written at all during theater school, but I was starting to think more about writing. They, some of the things they had asked us to do, we had a, uh, an instructor named uh, Michael Mawson, and he had given us this very interesting uh, project called a vocal mask. I don't, so you know what a vocal mask is. Um, all these little different bits and pieces that form a larger whole. I had we had a theme. My theme was sex, um, so we had songs and and all those things. So uh, there was a kind of writing that came along with that. And so that got me interested in writing again. And I thought, no, I don't want to be an actor. I, I want to be a writer. So, you know, I suddenly understood. And 
I mean, it was a tough transition, but it was very, um, I mean, I got to know about myself, which was the great thing about it. It really helped me understand who I was and what I wanted and what was important to me. So there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I think going into, I think, you know, going into theater school, uh, in the first year, I think somebody may have mentioned that people got cut sometimes people got cut, but I don't think any of us actually thought it was a real thing until we, until some of our classmates were no longer there or we had been told that we'd scraped through or whatever. Um, and it, it, nobody said at that time, uh, that maybe we'd progress, we hadn't progressed enough for this school. They essentially said, uh, it essentially was sort of like, you're not, it felt like you're not good enough and we don't think you have a career. Um, and yet, um, it's, it's so, uh, and I, I think this is one of the reasons why I think it's fallen out of favor and theater schools aren't doing it so much anymore. Um, because how the fuck do they know what your career is going to look like once you leave the school? I know plenty of people who left the theater program and had amazing careers. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's unrelated to the school. So, um, I, I'm happier that it's out of uh, that it's fallen out of favor because you can't learn to be an artist um, when you are living in fear. Like if you were afraid for the entire time that you're in theater school, you can't create art. So I'm glad that 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 has fallen by the wayside. Now, one thing that that, that I'm interested in because uh, you've you've talked about writing, we've talked about writing, uh, we talked about you know how you went to the National Theater School, but what what was it that first made you want to be an actor at first? Hmm. That's a good question. I, you know what? I, I don't know what actually made me, I see that's the thing is that I don't have the fire in my belly to do that. And I think I thought I wanted to be an actor and I think, um, see friends of mine were actors. I had friends in, who became actors and I thought, well, they're doing it. Uh, maybe I can do this, you know, and, and this was certainly a, you know, I was constantly always searching for what am I going to do in life? And so, um, this just seemed to be something I could do. I mean, I, I had done uh, a bit, I had done a play in high school. And in fact, I had been in a play prior to getting into NTS, uh, at McGill, uh, the McGill players at McGill university, um, I was, uh, inspector Foss in, um, uh, uh, the physicists, um, Friedrich Durenmatt. And, um, so, I mean, it's not like I'd never done it. I had done it. And so, um, in fact, I had been in, in, uh, I had a, I was supposed to be an extra in a film and they sort of gave me a line. And so I'd done some film. And in fact, you know, when they cut me from NTS, one of the things they said to me says, you might be a good film actor. They didn't think I'd be a good stage actor. So, you know, I, I, you know, and they might be, right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't consider myself to be, uh, you know, I, I, you know, as a writer, I have to go on stage and read and that's, I can do that. That's okay. Um, I'm not sure about the whole idea of, of how you create a character. I never quite understood how you create, I always played myself. And so maybe that's what they thought, you know, he'd be fine as a, you know, a film actor who just plays himself all the time. So 
I, I don't know. But um, so I never to sorry to answer your question is I, I never really thought of really being an actor. It wasn't a burning ambition f since I was a kid or anything. Um, it was just something I wanted to try out. Um, I mean, not bad to, for somebody who just wants to try it out to end up at the yeah, National Theater I, School. I, I kind of lucked into <laughs> it is how I felt, you know, I... Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you met. So, I was just gonna say, you met, you met, you met uh, uh, Ted Dykstra while you were there, and uh, you know, formed this 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 incredible part partnership. So something definitely yes, good came I, out of I it. I should say, I had been out of theater school at, when I met Ted. He he was in theater school, but I I wasn't in theater. School ah, before. okay. Um, yeah. So right. So there, but um. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I was living with someone who was in his class. And in fact, she was, um, mm. they had a typing room at the time because they had a playwriting program. And so she was typing up some of my poems. He happened to come by, read a couple of poems and said, write me some lyrics. And so boom, bam, really, it was just like that. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> now, um, you went from Montreal to Toronto. Um, what 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 was your impetus for for going uh, from Montreal to Toronto? Just uh, the arts? Uh, well, or no, because everyone I knew, who all my friends, and particularly Ted, and and uh, and the woman I was living with at the time, who was in his class, they they were they had graduated, so they were all moving to Toronto, and I thought, I'm don't you know I'm going to come along and do this too. So I did, and we we continued writing, of course. And, um, yeah, so it was mostly because, uh, I didn't, uh, I just, I just want to continue writing. So, yeah. 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 Um, so you lived in Toronto for 17 years. Um, what made you decide to move to, to, right. to Prince Edward Island? And, uh, was that culture shock when you, oh, yeah. when you made that change? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good culture shock, I should say. Um, so what happened was I, in, uh, 1999, I met, Thelma, who is now my wife, but was my girlfriend at the time. Um, and, uh, we went, we, we met in 99. We, uh, went to Prince Edward Island in 2000 to, cause her parents were here. So we came and, um, uh, just for a vacation and I liked it. I'd been here before in like the seventies. And so it was nice. I said, Hey, this is great. And we were staying at a cottage where her parents uh, spent the summer right near where their house was. And, um, her father was not in the best of health. And her mother said, we're probably not going to use the cottage anymore. We're going to close the place up. And, uh, it was like, no joke, a moment of telepathy. We looked at each other, Thelma and I looked at each other and we said, so we're moving here. And yeah, and, and we had bonded early on, on the fact that we want to get out of Toronto. I mean, and, and so we had thought about like London or Guelph staying in Ontario. But right after that, once we heard the, they were going to close the cottage, we said, oh, so we're going to move here. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And so we did the next year, 2001, May, we've just packed it all up, moved. And yeah, we got like, I have, I've lived in cities most of my life for, there was a, um, a short period in, uh, 73, 
uh, where I lived in England with my sister, we lived in the country. And uh, so I knew what country living was like. But, you know, I, I'm here where we live. It feels somewhat um, a bit secluded, not as much as it did then. More people live here. We're right near a, a river and we're on 22 acres of wooded land. So it really does feel secluded, but we do have neighbors. And uh, so there was this this real, this, I don't know, this kind of illusion that I'm hidden. I'm hidden from the world. I want to be a writer. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to focus. I've been writing most of my life anyway. I am going to focus. I'm going to get published. I'm going to do all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I, I felt like I was, I was hidden. And so this is 2001 and we're there in May. Um, our anniversary just by chance, happens to be on uh, September 11th. And so September 11th, 2001, we're going to celebrate our anniversary. And I wake up and start reading about these planes hitting the Twin Towers. And so we sort of spent our anniversary just watching this news coverage the, the whole day and the whole evening. And that burst my bubble about feeling like I'm hidden. I said, I'm not hidden. Nobody's hidden. We're all out in the open. It's a whole new ball game now. So, yeah, so that's how that was. How would you describe the culture shock from coming from Toronto to to PEI? What's uh, cuz I, I I know the East Coast has a, a different pace than say the Ontario and the, and especially the city of Toronto. What what, what did um, you well, find that? Well, it is slower like? and that's why why we came. We came for a different uh, um, you know, kind of life, a slower kind of life. Um it's it's very I mean it's an island so it's very insular I mean I grew up on Montreal but it's not like that I mean this is very insular and it's very it's I mean they they can be as friendly as can be and then you know it can be somewhat different suddenly and you know to to really be part of the island and be, you know, it's about community, very much about things like um, volunteering. Volunteering is a, is a huge culture here. Um, and so, you know, to, you, if you, a lot of people come from away and they come to PEI and they don't like, they think it's going to be like Ontario. And so they don't last long. And so, and of course, living in, in the city, it's not like I'm, I'm not antisocial somewhat, but you know, I'm used to being alone and that's just part of who I am. I, I like being alone and it sort of, I, it's helps me be a writer liking to be liking my own company. And so, um, I'm, you know, I, I, I like my status of being from away or, or, uh, or as you know, the more PC, uh, phrase now is a Islander by choice. So I'm an Islander by choice, but I, you know, for me being from away, that's, that's what writers are. Writers are from away, no matter where you are and where you're from, you are not, you're part of it and you're not part of it. And so, and also the, the writing community, I mean, there are writing communities all around the Island, but 
the big writing community is very Charlottetown centric. And so I did get to know people there. I don't drive and we're quite far from Charlottetown. So I don't get there a lot. And so again, it's like one foot in, one foot out. And um, so I think if anything, what it really sort of brought home to me was this kind of duality in myself of being social and being not social, of being part of things and not being part of things, of of being in it and um, always being on the outside looking in. So, um, yeah, so that's that's really it. That's kind of, it's kind of really solidified that for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, I do want to talk sure. about some of your other writing. We'll get away from, from Dion for a second. Um, tell me about your novel, The Island Gospel According to Samson okay, Grief. Okay, well, um, The Island Gospel According to Samson Grief is set on PEI, and it's about a, um, a, uh, a painter, um, a reclusive painter, Samson Grief, uh, who lives in a, a, um, a fictional town of Mount Russet on PEI. He's from Toronto. And so he is an expat living on PEI. Um, and basically, uh, he's going through a, uh, um, a block, a, a creative block, and uh, he's trying to work on a painting and it's just not, he can't move any further with it. And he is basically confronted by three uh figments of his imagination who come to him uh, in the guise of Judas Iscariot, Fagin, and Shylock. And they, uh, when they confront him, they uh, identify themselves as messengers of a deity called the Supreme One. And the Supreme One um, has decided that the Middle East, uh, things cannot be resolved there. And so Prince Edward Island is going to become the new promised land. And to make that happen, Samson Grief uh, has to build the first synagogue on PEI to get these cosmic wheels going. And he he reluctantly decides to do this uh, and then is uh, faced with many um, obstructions and and different things that that sort of try to keep him from doing it. And it, it evolves into a kind of political story and it, the, it, it's satirical magic realism. And so it is somewhat funny. I keep being told it's funny. And uh, I thought it was funny, but it's nice to be told it's funny too. But it does take a very sinister turn uh, as, as it goes along. Um, what, I mean, I'm always fascinated by where ideas come from. Um, what was, uh, you know, one of my favorite, one of the the questions I hate to be asked as a writer is, is where to get your ideas from. But what I'm curious about is, is, uh, the impetus. What was the germ of, of this particular story that led to it becoming this novel? Well, uh, w- once I moved to PEI, I, I did start to write short stories set here and, uh, some poems set here. And I knew eventually I was working on a no, my first novel is set in Montreal, but I knew eventually I would write a story set on PEI. And the story I told you about um, about uh, the tw- uh, uh, 9/11 happening, that that uh, bubble being burst, that was the first impetus. So suddenly feeling, okay, 
things have changed, a very profound change. And um, also discovering that there really is no synagogue here. We don't have a synagogue. We've got all sorts of churches, all the denominations. We have a mosque. Uh, we have a couple of uh, uh, Buddhist temples. Um, but there's no synagogue. And we do have a, uh, a small but very significant Jewish population. And what I found out about that was when I, when I discovered that was that they, um, they're very closely knit for the most part. They have a, an email newsletter that goes around. Uh, I am now on that email newsletter. And so, um, they celebrate all the, all the holidays basically by at going to someone's house, someone gets designated and it's kind of like a potluck. And so that was very interesting to me. And, um, I don't know what it was. There was something that, that felt very old world about it. And, um, and so, so discovering that and discovering that there's no synagogue, suddenly I knew, and, and for some reason I had this idea that I wanted to write a kind of, I didn't know if it was going to be a dystopian novel or a utopian novel or a bit of both. I didn't know what it was. And so, um, all this was starting to gel and I, the gestation period was quite a long time. Uh, so it was quite a few years and I started writing it. I, I know I wrote a first something that was kind of a hybrid of a first draft and a, and an outline I would say around 2015, so 2014, somewhere like that. And, um, and that, and that was in third person. And then I thought, no, this needs to be in first person. And that, again, that was kind of momentous for me, knowing I had to find this guy's voice. And so 2016, things were kind of rolling in. And of course, Donald Trump was elected president. And that, that was when I started to really start to think about where's this novel going and it's going to take this very dark turn because the interesting thing about Trump being elected was that the, a lot of his base were evangelicals. And so there was this thing that said, you know, God elected Donald Trump president. And I thought, what if that's true? So what if that's true? What is the end game for God? Like, is he doing it to, to just burn everything to the ground so we can start over and have uh, a, a better world? Is Maybe that was, could that be it? And I thought, oh, so this idea of the Supreme One and suddenly all of that was coming into play. And and really, then it was giddy up and, and there's no stopping now. Um, when you were, uh, when you're writing, uh, how much... Do you, are you a, are you a by the seat of your pants? Do you do you plan it out? Do you how how do you start out when write. you're writing? <laughs> I, there's I have done things like like outlines. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for me, an outline is a nice way to to put down what you know, and then forget about it and don't stick to it like it's a game plan. Um, so, but for the most part, I am very much uh, by the seat of my pants. I just start writing and I don't have any, I don't use any building blocks. I don't have notes. I don't make notes. I don't do anything like that. I kind of write 
and then I re I, I edit and revise as I go along, and then I do more of that, and I sort of revise and edit until I'm sick of it, and say, okay, I'll. I'll or usually, I just don't know what to do next, and then I kind of force myself to think about, okay, what's coming next. And so I go along like that. And so I do a lot of rewriting or, or a lot of rereading, I should say, of my, of, of what I've got. And so to a certain point, I get to actually somewhat know it off by heart. I know where things are happening in the novel. Um, the, the author, Neil Gaiman, refer, talks about uh, writing as especially your first draft is just discovering what the story is until you find what the end is. And then you go back and, and your first revision is to make it look like you meant to right. do that all along. That's true. You know, I, I, I took, I yeah. took writing uh, two writing workshops with Alistair McLeod and he told us, he says, I write my endings first. I want to know where I'm going. And oh. I couldn't believe it. And I said, but he said, that's hmm. what I do. And I said, okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, how long? How long did the writing process for this novel take? And how does it compare with, if you can compare, uh, previous works? How long uh, did it take? Um, yeah. So, I I guess I started really in 2015, and I guess I finished probably 2020. I think I I think I finished in 2020. But, you know, it's really hard. Yeah. So five years. And I, I would say my first novel was probably around the same. It really, you know, the the writing is one thing. And then there's the searching for the publisher. And as far as I'm concerned, sending your work out is part of the creative process, right? You You take a thing as far as you can, whether it's a short story or a poem or whatever, you send it out, get it out of your hair for a little while. It comes back. Most likely it's, it's rejected. And then you look at it with fresh eyes. So it's, it's like a, it's a very tidal rhythm. It's, it's message in a bottle, right? It goes out and it comes back. And so because I do consider that to be part of the process, I, I, you know, often looking for a publisher takes as long, if not longer than writing the damn novel. So, you know, it's all part and parcel as far as I'm concerned. So 10 years, you know, it could go that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now speaking about, about the writing process and how long things, things, uh, uh, take, um, when, uh, you and uh, Ted Dykstra started working on, on Dion, um, did he have an idea as, as sort of the, you know, one of the leaders of, of, of the coal mine theater that, um, there was a, a performance date in mind for that, or was it like, we'll get this thing written. And, uh, when that's finally done, then we'll figure out if we could program it. Well, Is that how it went out or was there an end there date? Wasn't, not at the beginning. And, and first of all, it was never, I don't think it was meant to be done at the coal mine at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning, we talked about other venues and trying to find a venue. Um, so it, the coal mine was not on the radar for that. Uh, although Diana Bentley, the other co-founder of uh, coal mine, she's the producer. Um, the, I think the, the thought all around was trying to do it somewhere else. And, um, so, um, but 
I, you know, compared to um, Dorian, which took all this time. Ten, so we started writing in 2020. And at one point, Ted came to me and said, um, oh, by the way, uh, we have a musical director, Bob Foster. And I said, oh, okay, that's cool. And Bob had worked with Ted on uh, one of his other shows. And so that's how he knew him. And he was very interested in this. I guess he'd heard a song. I don't know, because we weren't even finished writing it. And then at some point again, he said, oh, uh, uh, P uh, Peter Hinton's uh, very interested. She's, he wants to direct it. I said, we're not even finished. How does he know? How does he know about this? Like what? He must have heard a song. How can he judge anything by one or two or three songs? You know, and, you know, uh, so things were sudden, like, compared to that one, things were suddenly going giddy up, like galloping along. And so I said, okay, well, um, you know, we'll get this done. No problem. And so we did. I think we finished it. Yeah, well, we, Ted, I mean, I kept sending stuff to Ted and he had to work on it. And Ted, you know, he writes the music and then he, uh, uh, and then he demos it at, in his home studio and that's a long process. And so it was done by the end of 2020 and in, no, it, um, no, he pro it probably went into 2021 because we did a workshop in the fall of 2021. And uh, I think he had just gotten music done. I think he had just gotten his, his demos done. And so, um, yeah, so then we had this, this, you know, this workshop and I was thinking, when could this happen? So I don't think we had a date. And again, so then 2022 came, there was possibly going to be another workshop that it didn't happen. And then there was a workshop in 2023 in the, uh, in the fall. And by that time, Ted said, we're doing it at coal mine or it's going to be in 2024. And I said, oh, wow. So it's like no time has passed for me anyway. It feels like we just started writing this thing. So really amazing. Especially, I mean, I think, I think, you know, you, you sort of described the, the length of time that it took to write, uh, yeah, the last, uh, uh, musical, uh, Dorian, um, that you must've thought you would be writing this well, one for when, years. When Ted first came to me, I, I was worried about that. I said, I, I don't know, like really how long. So, and I knew Ted didn't want to have a long drawn out thing again too. So I just threw caution to the wind. I said, I'm put faith in this. You want to do this. And I want to keep writing with you because I, you know, the, we had, we hadn't written for 20 years and then we started writing again and it was, I had forgotten how much I missed it. Like I knew I missed it. And the strange thing was that in the time when we weren't writing, I still wrote lyrics. I was writing poetry. I was writing short stories. I was writing novels but every now and then I had an idea. I said, this is a song. So I'd write a song lyric and I'd go, oh, what am I going to do with this? I don't, I, you know, and so, um, so it was great. Like once we started writing again, I thought, oh, this feels so right. So good. So when he sprung it on me, he kind of did spring it on me, said, hey, what about another rock opera? What about, you know, the back eye? I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> you know yeah 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 um now you mentioned there's been there've been two workshops and now it's it's 
going to going to be going into production very soon as we record this. It's really only a couple of weeks away, a few weeks away uh, from going into production. Um, I don't know if you're going to be able to see the 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 final production, but if you are, um, what are you hoping to discover uh, through seeing it performed or through being in the audience? Or what do you hope uh, uh, comes of, of of the show if you're not able to be there in the room? Okay, well, first of all, I will be there. Um, there was a question of whether I was going to be able to go, and that has to do with other stuff, uh, home stuff and, and, and things that are going on where, where, where I live. Um, also, I haven't been off the island since 2019. And so this is – and I've got to travel in February. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I am not looking forward to that. So – um, and I did, you know, what, to, what was I, I, you know, when I decided I'm going to do this, it was all still kind of up in the air in my head. I was going, what's this going to be like? What's this? What is it? Is it like coal mine? See, I was at the, the first coal mine theater, um, cause this is their new theater. They had a fire there a couple of, in the old theater, and then they got donations and had a, a bigger, it's a bigger theater, um, but the same kind of configuration, basically just a, just a, a flat space. It's just a, a space that they configure into a playing area. So I had been in, in the, uh, the first one and I said, what, how are they, like, what, are, I know this is a bigger space, but what are they going to do? Like, how are they going to do this? And is this going to be just kind of a glorified concert version? Or I don't know what can happen here. So um, what's been interesting is it, it's now, it's in uh, rehearsal. And so um, they're, uh, the coal mine team have been sending out pictures. And so I've seen pictures of what the actors in costume, I've seen one picture of the space where the set is being erected and it looks like it's like out of Ben-Hur. And so I thought, how are they doing that? How does this happen? And um, there was a little snippets of video where I'm hearing. Now I've, I've heard them sing. I've heard, it's not the same actors, like only one, I mean, yeah, I think only one of the actors, no, two of the actors who were in the original uh, workshops have made it to this production. And a lot of this are new cast that I've not met or, 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 um, heard before. And so, um, I've heard bits of, of vocal, like I've heard them singing and I go, wow. And so the anticipation for me is like really rising and I'm going, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be knockout. And, you know, there, there will be a, a, a kind of, um, how do I put it? Sort of a, 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 an emotional part of this, of, uh, sitting there with Ted, um, watching something of ours on stage. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be that, and I don't know, we might just lose it. And, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's always a, a mix of emotions when something that you have created uh, is, is presented. So especially when you mentioned like that, 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 uh, that uh, 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 Dorian uh, was worked on for a long time, but didn't have a full production. So now you get this 
this full production of this of this show. So right. that's incredible. But even with Dor- Dorian, we had yeah. two workshop productions, and even that, you know, I'd never been that for me. That was big, Ted. In bo- in yeah. one of those productions, in fact, in both of them, Ted played piano, and so he wasn't watching it; he was participating. I was watching it, and it was. Like, I couldn't believe it, you know, even though it was a workshop and it was kind of Mm -hmm. like a concert, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. We're pretty much at the end of our time. I want to thank you so much for giving me uh, some of your time this evening. Uh, thanks so much for talking about 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 the show, and uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Phil. It was a great, a uh, great opportunity. I appreciate it. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.